Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm with a comedian. I recently just saw his, ah, saw his showcased at Bad Jimmy's. I, I filmed it. Um, first, let's start with, let's actually start with Bad Jimmy's. Um, yeah. a good comedy show. Mm-hmm. I'm here with Bo Johnson. He's a Seattle comic. He's a touring comic, which um, not a lot of comics can say. So congratulations for that, oh, by the way. Thank you. Um, just from the set I saw you do on stage, I'm a fan, honestly. And um, previous guest at Christmas, he has nothing but positive things to say about you so yeah Chris thanks is for wonderful being oh, thank you very much and thanks for making tea by the way oh of course I mean it's <laughs> it's your tea yeah. I, I just uh, put the kettle on after I didn't plug it in the first time it happens, but um it happens. yeah you wanted to know about good comedy yeah let's talk about that so I'd say like probably around May or I think May of 2022 whenever right. the the first summer as like right as vaccines were starting to roll out with COVID at that point I think I'd maybe just started doing stand-up again after about 14 months off. And um, Chris, you mentioned one of my best friends and the the co-producer for Good Comedy. We kind of were looking at what was happening in other cities. Like the the first stand-up I did after like coming out of out of the pandemic was in San Francisco. Mm. And I think I maybe had like 13 shows in about like seven days being down there Mm -hmm. and like one was outdoor I think it was actually the last the last show at a a public baseball field in a park uh the next week I think that uh park officials came and shut it down after it had been running for about six or seven months what about the Um, fully loaded tour that's what fucking um Bert Kreischer's doing on the, the baseball field shit. Oh, yeah. I think that's a little... You have to be a little bit more resourced. I was mostly performing in public parks, uh, <laughs> some yeah. parking lots, <laughs> um, some easements, you know. And But I was like, oh, look at all these outdoor shows here. And so Chris and I had kind of been driving around the city mm-hmm. looking at, like, what is, like, a park that we could set up in without bothering too many people or what are outdoor venues that we could use. And... I had met the one of the owners of Bad Jimmy's years ago. Um, one of my other friends, Andrew Slater, the one of the first times I met him, he'd kind of come up with uh, one of the owners. He used mm-hmm. to do stand up as well, and so he did like one show inside their brewery, and he was kind enough to do like a viewing party um, when I had like my little clip air on Kevin Hart's show on Comedy Central. And so I'd met him a handful of times and we were like, well, this is an easy like starting point to ask, um, like, can we do this? And then kind of, it ended up being just a really awesome and supportive location in every Mm -hmm. way. It looks really beautiful, especially when the sun goes down. And so it's kind of been a monthly show there since uh, May of that year. And we've had some great local people, some out of towners, passing through and it's kind of also allowed Chris and I to move into the Crocodile's new um, comedy club hereafter, Mm -hmm. their bottom tier in the the new venue that they established in Seattle. And beyond that, we've been able to partner with this company called The Nudge in Seattle and in Austin at this point, which is like an events recommendation service. Mm -hmm. And so we've produced our show for them where they basically shoot out to all roughly depending on each city like 40 plus thousand of their users hey here's a comedy show to check out yeah and it's kind of let us do the show in a scale that wouldn't have been possible just on our own and so it kind of went from being like maybe we'll do this in like a park near Ravenna yeah for free 
with the volume down low enough that we don't bother anyone in an apartment to kind of something that's let us do some pretty cool things in Seattle and in Austin so far and in venues that it would have been cool to perform in regardless, but it's felt more special kind of mm. having built it with one of my best friends and it being our show. That's super dope. So for like a uh, artist, whether it's like hip hop or pop mm-hmm. or whatever, they start out at a small venue and then just have to work their way up basically until they build up enough of an audience. Is it similar for comedy or if you're just funny enough and like I, I've heard enough about like, you know, like mid seashore and like mm-hmm. how she would like pass people at certain that, that club. What's the fuck? What's the name of that club? Uh, the comedy the store. Comedy store. Yeah. My bad. So, but I don't know if that always meant that those comics she passed had a massive following versus if you're a hip hop artist or whatever, you kind of mm-hmm. have to have that following before a club lets you in. And what is that like for comedy? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at a lot of the, not all of, but some of the bigger clubs in the bigger comedy cities, not all of, but a lot of the people that perform there regularly definitely are, like, pretty famous Mm -hmm. comedians, if not, like, household names are famous in the stand-up world. Mm. And so, yeah, I think the first place that I ever performed was an open mic in a Thai restaurant in Capitol Hill, uh, Jai Thai, and... I've been lucky enough to get to do a handful of like, like big venues. Probably the biggest, the biggest show I've done honestly was not a good show for mm. me. Like the most, the most people in attendance was, um, probably about maybe four years ago now, a year or two before the pandemic, I was booked to open for one of the opening slots for Lionel Richie at Marymore mm. Park, and. I have like a longer story about that I'll do in in my act, but it's like essentially like a the best situation for comedy is that people are all going to a comedy show, <laughs> maybe to see you, at least to see stand up. Mm-hmm. It's hopefully a dark, full, packed room, and it's hopefully evening. Mm-hmm. And this was about like when I went on around three thousand people. <laughs> five o'clock in the afternoon like 70 degrees out and everyone's drinking and eating and hanging out with their friends waiting for Lionel Richie and to the best of my knowledge no one who had bought a ticket was expecting any comedy before Lionel Richie and like when you have an opening act I think any opening act like I just went I actually went to see the opening act was like the Heartless Bastards Mm -hmm. were opening for another band and I was like I'm here for them but everyone else here is mostly just kind of People are into it, but they're mostly chilling for who they bought their tickets for. Mm -hmm. And with music, you can kind of like still appreciate it Mm -hmm. happening um, and be doing your own thing. Obviously, it's not ideal if you're the musician on stage, Mm -hmm. but it's still kind of is like this is a nice thing. Whereas if stand up is happening and you don't want it to happen, it kind of stand up doesn't work either. Then you're just (laughs) a guy (laughs) talking for about 20 minutes. And so that was like the most people I've ever performed for, but I kind of did it knowing this will be a cool thing to do. Like this is like a kind of unique experience, Mm -hmm. but I'm not expecting it to go well, but I did get to see Lionel Richie. Did you get any laughs? I feel like people might like just zone you out at that point. I would say probably at least 50% of the people there were not paying attention. Oh man. (laughs) So, that's pretty crazy. Um, but I feel like music and co- I, 
it's funny because I've been say, I've been using the word artists for mm-hmm. comedians now, honestly. So every time I say artist, I feel like I have to break down what type of art yeah. I'm talking about. But I feel like comedy and, and music go hand in hand almost. There's a lot of correlation with it. But I guess if it's going to be like a comedy music show, it has to say it's a comedy music show versus yeah. just like throwing a comedian and up there. I will say also, like, I know they did the same thing uh, the next night in Portland, mm. but it was in the, I'm blanking on the name of the arena, but wherever the, like, the professional basketball team plays the... Fucking Portland Trailblazers? Yeah, wherever the Trailblazers <laughs> play in, uh, in Portland, it was in that arena, mm-hmm. and... I saw him like a year later and he was like, it was incredible. It was dark. They had like a video on me. It was like one of the coolest nights ever. It's like, I hate you. (laughs) I performed at a park at five o'clock in the afternoon. And like when Lionel Richie rolls out, they've got his whole band. They've got like, they get video monitors on screen so you can see him the whole time. None of that's set up. So I'm like, not only is it just like, no one's expecting stand up. At the time that I go on, I'm a little speck. Oh, on yeah. the stage, you can hardly even even see me. Which honestly, with how like, I think it went about as well as it could have, mm-hmm. but I was like, I'm all right with there not being large <laughs> video footage of yeah. this happening. That's funny. I feel like you mm-hmm. could use it as a resume builder somewhat. I opened for <laughs> Lionel Richie. Yeah, <laughs> I did not get to meet Lionel Richie. Ah. I did see him um, backstage, mm. like pretty up close. I'll say, like you can definitely tell, man. Like money helps with aging for oh, sure. Shit. Like it looks like they took him right out of the box. Still, <laughs> like he, I was like you. Like you can tell that he's old. Like he's moving great for for how old he is but like yeah. you can tell he's a little older in the same way that like my dad's 79 <laughs> and in great shape yeah. but like you can just see like the human body just shifts a little bit yeah. the way the, the weight carries but like from a distance you'd be like man <laughs> Lionel Richie looks the same <laughs> shout out Lionel Richie but like even like um Chris Rock for example he was on uh Buster Rhymes is a uh, last project he released it was like 2021 and he like narrated the entire project. So you, mm-hmm. you see comedians like actually go into people's projects yeah. and like do like um, skits and stuff. So that's kind of that's kind of cool to see. No, I think well, one of the things I've been thinking about lately, I think I've been I've been trying to make a point of like as it fits in, like trying to make time to go to see more shows that aren't stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not just see shows that aren't stand up, but like make time to block off a night to not work yeah. and go to a concert that I want to see. And I mean, it's such an like obvious point that I think it's almost moot, but Mm -hmm. I've been like, what is the thing that like I saw, I'd never been to the gorge before Mm -hmm. and I only knew like two or three of her songs going to it, but I went with two of my friends and we saw Brandy Carlisle and I was like, she really threw down. It's like, this is, it might've been that I did a lot of mushrooms. I don't think that was it, but I was like, this is maybe the best concert I've seen in my entire life. <laughs> this is beautiful. <laughs> this is absolutely marvelous. But I like saw some other bands like Big Thief at the Paramount and then some smaller shows just in like, in Ballard, what was his name? And there's a uh, Josiah Johnson who mm-hmm. used to be in the head and the heart. Yeah, yeah. And I was trying to think about I like, okay, band, yeah. So he was like with them until he he separated and is now doing his own thing. And he was great. But I was like trying to think about what are what's made those shows and other shows I've seen like what made them 
elevated mm -hmm. from the other performers that maybe were also performing, who were also good. Yeah. And it was like they it was that they were great singers and they were good instrumentalists, but it wasn't that that made it special. It wasn't that like they were that much of a better singer, is that they were like Brandy Carlisle was so clearly having the time of her life. Mm. And like or in another song you see someone like really experiencing whatever was on their mind when the song was written. And I was like, oh, what's making these shows special isn't just that they're talented musicians, but that they're present. Yeah. And I feel like for me, when I look at the shows I'm doing and I'm like, what's the difference between being happy with how it went? Like really being like, this is the way that I wanted to perform. And it's not even so much like did the jokes hit, but it's like if I just go on and I kind of am in a headspace where I hit play yeah, and then it's over and I'm like, I just kind of did it. You're the, like, you're the second person to say that not in a week for me. what my goal is. Yeah. Like The goal is to perform the jokes in a way that I'm enjoying it and to let myself have like the freedom to like follow something that happens that's different. And so like one thing I've been experimenting with, which I don't know if it's fully working or not, but mm. I've been like, oh, what are some jokes that I have? And nothing is worse than like stand up being told out of context mm -hmm. but for the purpose of this <laughs> like i do a i do a joke about how my parents are both massage therapists and go like that's why i sound like this <laughs> and um how like when i was younger kids would be like oh does your dad give you massages I'm like yeah <laughs> of course and they'd be like isn't that weird it's like no he's yeah. my dad like i'm not trying to bang my dad yeah but, like thanks for telling me a little bit about you and the end of the joke is about how like i went to a massage studio a few years ago. I went to a spa for the first time yeah. and the masseuse was like, um, have you ever had a massage before? And I go, yeah, both of my parents are massage therapists. She's like, uh, I'm worried this won't meet your expectations then. I'm like, what do you think I'm going to say? Like, That's not how daddy does it. <laughs> and so like that joke, for instance, it was like, I wrote that during the 14 months off. And one of my best friends, uh, Jacqueline, we would talk on the phone almost every single day. Mm. Like we just have so many inside jokes and she is a massage therapist now. She was in massage school at the time mm. and we were on the phone and she was like, I need people to like practice working on when I moved to Seattle. And I was like, yeah. I mean, if you need to, like you can work on me. And she basically was like, I would be intimidated. Your, your parents are so good. Mm. And that's when I was like, what do you think I'm going to say? <laughs> and so like when I'm on stage and I have other jokes like that, but I'll yeah. kind of be like, okay, when I first wrote the joke and was telling it, like first going back out, it would be explosive, not only because like it just was consistent, but mm. I was so excited to tell it. Yeah. And now it still works, but I've told it so many times that I'm like, mm. it's not the same. And so I'll try to be like on stage and go, okay, what was it like when I was in Hamlin Park talking on the phone with one of my best friends and I just wanted to say something to make us laugh? Mm. And with a lot of the jokes, I can kind of like try to go like, I was in Matt's basement when this idea showed up or I was on Jacob's like front porch talking about like applying for jobs and we had this dumb little one-liner. Yeah. So that's something I've been trying to do to be like, what's a way to try to be more present telling these jokes and to enjoy telling them. No, that's dope. I, I literally like a, um, one of the, I think it was Vox Rea. 
Mm-hmm. They they just performed at um, Capitol Hill Block Party, and I had them on oh, a few awesome. days ago. And they were saying the exact same thing about, about performing and how they need to work on being present because sometimes by the end of the show, it's just, it's over mm-hmm. in an instant, you know? Yeah. So like, but that, that means that you care about your craft. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, I think it's like you try to think about like, what is the goal in doing it? And mm-hmm. for me, I'm like, why do I like, what do I like about stand up and why, like, what drew me to it? And it's not so much that it's like, oh, stand up is my favorite art form and I love stand up comedy so much, mm-hmm. which I do. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh, I like laughing with my friends. Like, yeah. I like stuff that's funny. And for me, stand up happens to be the medium that it's the easiest to pursue that in a way where, like, it's kind of with plenty of gatekeepers and challenges yeah still but like the easiest where it's kind of like there are fewer barriers to just doing it Mm -hmm. like you don't really need many resources you just like that doesn't mean that the shows you're doing are good (laughs) but like you can just go into it um but yeah it's like how do i try to get funny the way that i am with the people i'm the most comfortable with and like how can you take these moments that like, I don't know, when you're hanging out with your best friends and you're laughing about something, it's easy because everyone knows each other. And so you know the context of like why something is funny because you know the history of like this person is like this. Um, And so translating that, I think it's like almost creating the context for people to understand Mm -hmm. like a a joke feels like the hardest part. Right. I think it's funny that we could have like a, a smooth jazz radio show together. We both oh, have yeah. like soft voices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going like to po- have people fall asleep to <laughs> listen to this podcast. When I was in middle school, I was very into clarinet. Like I played the clarinet too. Yeah, I loved clarinet. I was middle school, all state clarinet. Oh, I quit. Shit. I quit before high school. I, I threw it away. But I, what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make is up until eighth grade the only music that i listened to (laughs) was jazz clarinet (laughs) and i don't know if you know much about jazz clarinet but there's really only benny goodman and Artie shaw yes yes so i was only listening to (laughs) two clarinet players (laughs) it's a very short list of successful uh, jazz clarinet players yeah shout out those two and i yeah i was like at that point in time in seventh grade i was like it's gonna come back. It's gonna be me. Yeah, I played I played clarinet for seven years. So that's funny oh. that we can. Connect. Oh my gosh! And then um, you you went even further <laughs> than me. Yeah. <laughs> you still have the clarinet at home? Th- that's funny. I actually um, when I graduated high school, to to cut my ties from band and just focus on radio and media, yeah. I burned my clarinet. I put it in a campfire and burned it. You burned it. Yeah, I was like relieving. It was uh, symbolic. Yes. Is that something where now being older? You're like, that was kind of dumb. I could have just <laughs> sold the clarinet. <laughs> or did it still feel emotionally resonant and important to do? I think it was important because I have yeah. a weird thing where, like, if the minute someone forces me to do something, mm-hmm. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. So, like, after a few years in a band, I kind of felt like I was forced to stay in band. Mm-hmm. And then, like, similar to, like, reading. Mm-hmm. I don't burn books, but yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I don't read that much because, like, by the time you reach high school, you're kind of forced to do like mm-hmm. book assignments yeah. and all that. So now I don't, not really much of a reader 
or a clarinetist because I burned my clarinet. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I like that you're like the only the only reason I don't play clarinet anymore is because I burned it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so let, let's get into your mm-hmm. background a little bit. Are you, yeah. are you from Seattle or did you move here? Yeah. So I grew up, I was uh, born and raised in Lake Forest Park, suburb of Seattle. Mm-hmm. I was uh, born in my parents' massage studio, actually. <laughs> Home birth. <laughs> That's crazy. You're not a massage therapist then. <laughs> the stars aligned for you. Yeah. So I was uh, born there, grew up in, in North Seattle, went to school, high school in Shoreline, and then went to college at University of Washington. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah, man. What'd you go to school for? Uh, I went for communications and comparative history of ideas. Oh, what's comparative history of ideas? Uh, that's like a build your own liberal arts degree, Okay. which is really, I should have just done that. Cause I, to be honest, I'm sure there are plenty of people who study communications and it means something to them. But mm-hmm. to me, I was like, look, cl- I want to take all these classes spread around like the humanities Yeah. and I need to get a degree too. But if I'm going to take all these scattered courses, I need to get a degree, which is pretty easy to get. Mm-hmm. And that's a horrible decision to make when pursuing an expensive <laughs> education. <laughs> if I were to go back and do it again, um, I don't know about maybe who knows. I think go back. I think sometimes you just it's good to have. I would have done things differently, but also mm-hmm. I like where my life is. I don't know if I would yeah. change things up too much because that's how you learn. But. Yeah, I don't think it was a wise decision. When did you when did you start comedy? So I started I knew I started watching stand up in middle school. Okay. It was like I I was mowing lawns a lot. I was doing a lot of like kind of, you know, early middle school, high school manual labor for money. Mm-hmm. And the iTunes store had just popped up. And so I spent eighth grade was also the year where I stopped only listening to jazz clarinet. And the iTunes music store was like I was at a new school, didn't have a lot of friends at that point yet. And Mm -hmm. so that was kind of like my basis of like what music was. I had like two friends and one of them told me he was like, Aerosmith is great. And so I was like, all of my music in eighth grade was Aerosmith. And at that point in time, um, the Black Eyed Peas were exploding. So my iTunes library was like Aerosmith and Black Eyed Peas. And like, yeah, exactly. And then also they were putting out all the Comedy Central like half hour specials. So I spent like probably a thousand dollars on songs and all of these specials like Dimitri Martin, Mitch Hedberg. And that's when like in the back of my mind, I was like, I want to do this. But I think it took until getting out of college. I was like doing some writing projects with friends and it just kind of dropped off because the other people I was working with and what was totally valid, we're just kind of like, this isn't the amount of work I want to put into this. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, I know that I want to work. I like this and I want to work really hard mm-hmm. and stand up. I was like kind of circled back to doing it. And I think I had wanted to do it for years, but I was trying to find a way to convince myself that I could do something without having to do the performing element of it. Right. Cause that's more frightening mm-hmm. than just writing in your room. Hundred percent. So, what so job did you get right outside of college then? Uh, I was a, a busboy at Duke's Chowder House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait. So wait. So, 
what were you going to college for? Like, what job were you trying to get? Or were you just I going to college? I wanted to be a busboy, Duke's shout <laughs> <laughs> I think that, honestly, I was a good student in high school. Like, I was good at being a student. And the subjects I did in college were not the hardest, but I was also good at being a student. Mm -hmm. And I think going into college, I just kind of thought, like, oh, you'll figure it out. And instead, I just did college. I was like, oh, I didn't really find anything. Like, I'd had some intern, like, I interned for some events companies. Mm -hmm. I knew I liked music and comedy. And so I, like, had in the least important position been involved with like the the folks at UW that brought the bigger concerts to campus mm -hmm. and honestly some of my takeaway was kind of like I think I could tell that I was like there's I'm stopping myself from actually doing this and in some ways working in event production with music and comedy but doing none of the creative elements was almost worse mm. than doing something I was completely disinterested in because I was close enough to what I wanted to do without doing what I wanted to. Put me if in, If that coach. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. It would kind of be like maybe like, I don't know how like NFL players feel when they have to hang up their jersey and then they're just like talking about football. Right. Like I don't, I mean, for some of them, I'm sure they still love it and that's so fun. But I'm sure in other cases, they're like, maybe yeah. I just have to watch people do like, the thing that I spent my whole life like building myself up for now it's kind of passed. Mm -hmm. I can connect with that. I, I worked at 92.5 and I wanted to be a radio host and, but I didn't want to go to school mm -hmm. and there was no radio broadcasting degree in Washington. So yeah. I got this job in high school right before I graduated and I would have had to leave the station to go to broadcasting mm -hmm. school. So I was like, right next to the radio host they all knew me they like they almost became like like my second mom and second yeah. dad like i was super close with them and um so i created a podcast as my way to be mm -hmm. like get into media yeah so I, I can see that with like being that close to comedy but like i was in the fucking radio so i was in the radio yeah. station but i wasn't a radio host. so like being that close to comedy but not doing it yourself i can see how that might have pushed you to yeah. want to do comedy yeah so i think like i was then i was at duke's chatterhouse i was bussing <laughs> tables and I was like, honestly, now that I look back at it, minus the fact that that was like physically the hardest job I've ever yeah. had to do, like have like 70 tables you're accountable for in the summer, pick up every dish. I was like, the only thing I've gotten better at is carrying a lot of plates. And that's like, I don't mean to like not putting down like that kind of labor whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Like the stuff that I do to make money is so, I just carry around chairs too. Like I like those jobs more than I like sitting in an office mm -hmm. and the people I worked with, I think are the like restaurant people are way cooler. Mm -hmm. It's way more fun. But I was like, I'm not, I also wasn't doing anything outside of like working in a restaurant that meant something to me. So I was like, and the people who I saw in that industry who seemed the happiest either really cared about food mm. in a way that like wasn't my thing or right. liked bartending or they had something separate that like that kind of work kind of allowed the flexibility for. And so I was like, well, I need to put focus on something. And that's when I started writing that dropped off. And then before I think it was January of 2015, I kind of had gone and watched two open mics. And I was like, I was a New Year's resolution comic. I mm -hmm. was like, 
I'm going to do it one time. And then I did it one time and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing this. And then started doing it like two, three times a week and got an office job at that point, honestly, mostly just cause I couldn't work nights anymore. Um, if I wanted to do this mm-hmm. and then started doing stand up probably like f- five nights a week. Wow. Damn. Do you see a lot of comics do that or, or do you feel like you were kind of an exception? Cause for music, at least there's so many artists that want to do music. Right. But mm-hmm. at the same time, they don't want to sacrifice their personal life to just focus on music. Right. And that kind of is, it's kind of a little bit of like the, the lazy mindset mm-hmm. of like, if I'm dropping a song, maybe every couple of months sporadically or something, maybe something will catch versus like for me, I wake up, I'm checking music blogs. Mm-hmm. By the time it's 10, I'm already here at the studio and everything I do is related to like even yeah. working with like you at good comedy mm-hmm. or um, going on tour with Joe is because of my podcast. Cause I produce his podcast and everything like that. So everything relates back to my podcast yeah. versus um, a lot of creatives don't know how to make that their full time thing or they're kind of lazy about it. So did you kind of feel weird about like, solely focusing on comedy that much? Did you feel like an outcast or did you see other people doing that as much? I mean, I think that like I was blessed in a way that at that point in time, a lot of my best friends, the people that like I loved the most had kind of moved away from Seattle. Mm. And so I didn't feel like I was sacrificing a social life in the way that I would have been otherwise. Like Mm -hmm. they're definitely like when my friend Matt would come home for holidays. I'm like, well, I want to see Matt because Matt's here. Right. But I was like, the people that I would be choosing to spend the most time with, just they're not here. That's not a, it's not even an option to mm-hmm. be around them. And so that was easier. Um, in terms of do most people, I think that most people who get better at stand up do that. I don't think that, I think that like what people's creative goals are and what you want to get out of any kind of an art form is different. Right. And so there's nothing wrong with doing it a handful of times each week or here and there. But I think if you want it to be a job, and that doesn't mean have it feel like a job, but if you want to get to a point where you're doing it professionally, I was like, I'm going to have to treat this seriously, and I am going to have to do it not only when it's fun to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, there's a balance in life that's important, not only for, at least for me, trying to do more stand-up but also just being a happy person right like I don't want my whole life to be in basements I want to see friends I want to go to concerts I want to be outside too Mm -hmm. but it definitely does mean like treating it seriously like when I was in college I was working on a house with my dad and we were working in the laundry room like just kind of doing light like my dad did carpentry for a while, built houses for a while. So we're just doing some work like that. And he had been, when he got out of college, he, before getting a master's degree, he did like the second year of the Peace Corps. He was in Bolivia, came back. That's how he was able to afford going to university at that point in time, like Peace Corps sponsored it. Mm. And then he worked in local government for a few years and was like, I'm miserable. I'm smoking cigarettes, I'm drinking, I'm just, I hate, like, I hate this work, nothing's changing, and so he started flipping houses, and he slowly, he built a sailboat, 
And for years, he would flip houses for part of the year, and then he would sail for six months mm. and not work and go out with either, you know, whoever he was in a relationship with, eventually my mom. And that was kind of like my cool dad story. It's like, oh, my dad built a boat. But I don't, I, I was in that little like laundry room with him and it was like, how long did it take to build the boat? Because I I'd told that story for years, but I'd never really thought about the actual, like, what did that mean? Mm. And he was like, it probably took about five years mm. for the boat to like start from like not knowing anything about building a boat period to like it being able to be on the water maybe another two years before it was like not only on the water but like glossy and finished and then every year after that like as soon as you put a boat in water it starts to sink like maintaining it and he would live on the boat too Mm -hmm. like and so i was like oh that's the thing that he did that i thought was so cool when he was younger and i was like whatever my boat is it's probably going to take a minimum of five to seven years of really hard work. Like yeah. something that means like that much or feels that cool. It's going to be special not only because like I just snap my fingers and it's there, but like it's going to take effort and time and dedication. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Sometimes I get frustrated that that's so true, though. You know, like sometimes yeah. you do want success right away but it does take time mm-hmm. that's a good point fuck that was an amazing story and yeah. analogy holy well, shit <laughs> i remember um you know i was gonna say i'm embarrassed but i like i like jack johnson mm-hmm. yeah not, the, not the only <laughs> music i like but that's a yeah. great song mm-hmm. feel good music mm-hmm. and i think like before i started doing stand-up i was listening i was living with my folks mm-hmm. for about a year and i would take the bus into the city and then i would walk 30 minutes to, to Duke's Chowder House, mm-hmm. right? So I would listen to comedy podcasts. I listened to, at that point in time, a lot of like comedy bang bang. Um, this comedian Pete Holmes had a podcast called You Made It Weird. Mm. And I remember, I think it was, I think he had an episode with Jack Johnson mm. <laughs> where he was talking about, like I said, middle school. All I knew, it was middle school or high school. I still was like not that aware of like what popular music was. <laughs> Um, and I remember Jack Johnson became huge and like for my, for, like for me, not knowing who he was, I was like, all of a sudden the biggest musician in the country is just some guy with an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was talking about like, oh, there's this perception that I became big out of nowhere. And he's like, at that point when all of a sudden we became visible, I'd driven across the country like 10 times in a mm-hmm. van with my band performing for empty rooms and he had a point about like with music you can kind of have this one hit like one hit and then disappear Mm. and he was talking about like just his theory of the longer it takes to reach your height is also like the length of your sunset Mm. if you will so he's like i'm no longer at the peak of like the biggest I'm gonna be as a musician. Like the height of my fame, the height of my success is gone, but because there were years of work getting there, I now get to enjoy like Mm. a longer, like sustained career. Damn, that's dope. Yeah. That's a good point. Do you you feel like you've had to sacrifice friendships and family at any point of your career though? 
Or do you feel like you've been pretty good at managing that? I mean, I think that unfortunately it has been like, yeah, a lot of my life. Yeah, I think there are a lot of experiences that I've had that are incredible and very special, like places I've gotten to be, shows I've gotten to do that are kind of a dream come true from mm -hmm. when I was like fantasizing about this in middle school. But definitely have also missed a lot of parties or going out or mm -hmm. just like like spending every night with friends and because I mean the reality of the situation is like I still I'm not going to have a full-time job for that much longer um, because I have a lot of savings and I can hopefully kind of subsist mm. but I won't be making like a real living mm. so I mean this whole time I've been working 40 hours a week plus whatever comedy is mm. and when it was just doing open mics, I also was younger. I was like 24 when I'm starting. Now I'm 30. So you get a little bit tired easier, but it also mm -hmm. was like, oh, just doing open mics. In some ways it's like, you'd have to wait to like, I'm lucky enough now that I often kind of can walk on mm -hmm. to an open mic in Seattle, or I can just show up and go up and leave. Um, but like to start, I would like get it, get to this Thai restaurant at like seven o'clock. So I could sign up at 8.30 and then perform at 9.45. <laughs> and so you're like spending like more, as like more of my time is waiting than doing comedy. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just the amount of time, it's like I, and as you start to work more and work the road more, have more shows or produce more shows locally, it's like maybe I'm making more money and I'm performing more in the thing that I want to do but it's not like I get to work 15 hours less at my day job. Mm -hmm. So I also just had a, he's a third time guest mm -hmm. on the podcast, Greg, Greg Cypher, shout out Greg. <laughs> um, he talks about how he kind of had this huge like run in Seattle in the early like, mm -hmm. 2015. And now um, he's coming back up and like uh, he's getting all these cool shows. He just opened for Method Man, I think. Is it, was it yesterday? Oh, um, cool. His music starting to take off because he was in a hip hop duo, so now yeah. he's in a solo career and it's starting to take off, which is really exciting. But um, he works in the restaurant industry, mm -hmm. and he talks about like he'll perform a show that's sold out, and then he has to go back to work where he's almost like a zero. Yeah. So what what's that like for comedy? Do you do you do you like your job, and does it kind of relate in any way to comedy? Not really. So mm -hmm. I work at a, a food bank in Seattle, and I've mm -hmm. worked there for about seven years now and I would say that I do like it and it's meant a lot to me at certain times of my life and I think it's shaped some of the things that I care about um, and especially during the pandemic when kind of like at the I had actually quit my job in March 2020 mm -hmm. to like take a year move back in with my folks and focus on stand-up full-time and that obviously did not <laughs> pan out very well. I went to Oklahoma City and I remember watching like the country shut down and like the I remember like seeing the NBA cancel on TV and being like, "Oh, this is like pretty big." Cuz yeah. whenever money yeah. starts to get canceled, I'm like, "Money doesn't have morals for the most part." Mm -hmm. So, this is a serious thing. So, went home. Yeah, all all of my shows that had been lined up, I um, had already canceled or had canceled and I'd moved out of my apartment and got my job back at the food bank and 
that was an in-person job. My parents are both, my dad is in his late seventies. Mm. My mom's in her sixties. And so I was like, well, I can't really even live in my childhood room if I'm going to work. So I moved into their now closed massage studio on the other side of the house oh, wow. and lived there. I was like, and had like a pretty rough breakup. And so I was like, oh man, all of these things that kind of I'd cared a lot about were gone within about two weeks, like this mm -hmm. relationship, someone I was in love with, um, like what I, the year that I'd kind of pictured for myself and all of this would like, I was very fortunate. I had a place to stay. I had income, like nothing was that bad for me, mm -hmm. but I was like, that job meant a lot in that moment where it's like good to have some sense of purpose. And mm -hmm. I think now kind of reaching the tail end of when I'll be there. I'm just, mm -hmm. I've been there for too long. Yeah. How'd you end up working at a food bank? And did you use your college degree for that? <laughs> I, I don't think that you need a college degree to do the job that I have. And I think that the place I work is actually in a way that is like positive kind of realizing that a college degree is not a requirement for mm -hmm. positions like just yeah. ability and like, you know, being a rational, caring person mm -hmm. are. But at the time, I think it did help. Mm -hmm. um, it was, uh, yeah, it helped me get a, a job that I made less money at than busing tables <laughs> at a restaurant. <laughs> um, that takes dedication to work for a job for seven years. Damn. Yeah. Has it flown by though, or is it like felt like a grind working there? It depends in yeah. different times. I mean, I think it's like, rationing out vacation that's the biggest thing is i think i've just reached a point where the how busy i am doing stand-up and how much time i need to be on the road it's just not sustainable or possible mm -hmm. to do both and if i need to make more money again at the end of the year i'll have to figure out what like more balanced way to live is mm -hmm. um but yeah i think it i think that for me at least having stability has made doing stand-up easier, right. especially, and I think that one of the things with it will be a challenge when my entire like livelihood and life is, like if work is all comedy, is that stand-up is a lot of highs and lows, like talking about like yeah. going into a restaurant after you perform this sold-out show. And when it's going well and you're in the pocket and you're feeling creative, it's like, the best feeling in the world like have you ever like gone boogie boarding or surfing or anything yes, like that yes you know like when like i don't even know what it feels like to really catch a wave in a real way when you look at like a good surfer mm -hmm. but like even just a like I, i've taken some surfing lessons and i remember like the few times you get up you're like wow i'm like the king of the ocean <laughs> yeah. and then i've seen like a photo of me <laughs> on that wave and i was like this not even a wave in sight <laughs> it looks like i'm on a lake um but when you catch this like this free floating ride where everything else lifts away and you're just like for a moment getting like pushed along by the ocean, that's like very cheesy. But when you're in the pocket on stage doing stand up, I think that's the only feeling I can think of where it's comparable. Mm. Um, and so it's the best. But other times, like just everything that's worked doesn't work anymore. All of the new jokes don't work. Um, some of the shows are like just so depressing or bad or you're like man i flew across the country to lose money and do bad yeah. like not only did i like lose money but i didn't even i did bad too <laughs> now i'm like in a dilapidated condo feeling bad about myself but like when you have a day job it's like at least it's there's this other purpose or or thing 
Yeah. And so I, like, I can't, I think especially those first few years when like you're mostly doing open mics, like first six months I was doing stand up. I feel like I was going to these open mics every single time knowing I was going to do bad. Mm. Like, and I still wanted to do it. I was excited to, but it's like the, the evidence was there and I was like, I'm going to bomb yeah. and I'm showing up and I'm going to do bad. And that's kind of the, mm. just a part of the process, I think. And then slowly it would be like, oh, maybe after six months, there's a 50% chance I'll do good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that just kind of proves to me that I'm a, this, this first is going to sound wild until I mm-hmm. explain, but what you just said just kind of proves that I'm, I'm kind of a pussy. <laughs> so basically I realized that I, and this is, the, I'm, I feel like the, I say this in the most positive way mm-hmm. for myself. Yeah. I like to control situations, but not, not people by any means. Mm-hmm. So I just want to make that just control situations for yeah. myself. So like, I have all this podcast stuff, but it's in a controlled environment. Mm -hmm. If I ever do live audience podcasts, it's because I've done, I'm counting on my guests a little bit to pull and I've done enough research to know that the guests can pull. And then Mm -hmm. however many people I can pull, it's just kind of like a second thought because I'm banking on my guests. Right. So I've never been in a situation really yet where I've had to worry about, Am I gonna bomb or not? Yeah, I mean that's just, which is a weird you could, experience. You could definitely frame that as being a pussy, or yeah. that could also be strategic and smart because <laughs> you're in a medium that maybe control is a little more possible yeah. too. Whereas if I was like, I'm only gonna perform for sold out shows with crazy audiences that want to see me, I just never would have yeah. been able to do it. And I think like I'm kind of reaching the point where some of the things you're talking about do feel more personal, like. Mm. I've been, I definitely was lucky the first few years of doing stand-up where I got some cool opportunities and I got some credits that generally are not um, that common mm. being based in Seattle. Um, but well, the, I don't know Richie. I know Richie. <laughs> the big one for me was, I remember there's a, there's a really really funny comedian and he owns a comedy club down in Tacoma now, Nate Jackson. I've had him on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So... I saw, I didn't know who Nate was at this point in time, and someone shared a Facebook post of Nate's, and it was like, if you care about stand-up and you want to have a future in this as a career, this is an opportunity you don't want to miss. And not knowing who Nate was, it kind of almost like sounded like when you go on Craigslist mm-hmm. and someone's like, do you want like a TV opportunity to be famous? You're like, this is like a scam. Mm-hmm. But I was like, Knowing him, I was like, it w- I wouldn't have thought that, but not having any idea, I was like, yeah. okay, whatever. Um, and so I submitted to it. And at that point in time, my best friend from high school and I had done this prank where we we kind of just filmed it for our friends and people liked it. So we put it on YouTube and it went kind of viral where mm. we snuck into a movie theater as one person with him wrapped around me. And... We had been on, like, uh, Nick Cage had a show called Caught on Camera with Nick Cannon. No, not Nick Cage. Nick Got Cannon. <laughs> very different people. <laughs> very, very different. Uh, he had a show called Caught on Camera with Nick Cannon on NBC yeah. where we, like, our little stunt was featured on that. We got interviewed. And so I had this, like, credit that made me sound more credible than I was. It had nothing to do with doing stand-up. 
where I was still, I'd been doing it for like a year and a half, but mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I've been on NBC. And so I got this audition slot and I think it was me and about, it's maybe 20 of us total, I want to say. And it ended up being an audition for this show Kevin Hart had called Heart of the City on Comedy Central. Mm. And went up last, auditioned for it. It was kind of like, this is a cool experience. Like, what an awesome thing to get to do, but I'm, I'm not going to get it. Mm. And a year later, or not a year later, but like four or five months later, I got a call. And she was like, you're going to be on Heart of the City. Mm. We need to start the paperwork now what's your social security number, your name? And I gave it to her and then we hung up and I was like, did I just get my identity stolen? <laughs> but like I had stuff like that where I was lucky, but it didn't really, things like that didn't shift. Like I was still mostly on shows where the people running the show were responsible mm. for people showing up. And now like being on the road and headlining a bit more and kind of have the having this slowly growing like social media audience, mostly on Instagram. Mm -hmm. It's the first time in my life that like people are coming to see me specifically. Not a ton, yeah. but like depending on the city, maybe like ten to thirty to forty. Maybe and or maybe in the, the city that I've picked not well, mm. one or two, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but where I think if I do a show where like there are only 10 people that hasn't happened yet because I'm also spending money on ads, mm -hmm. but like it'll feel more personal. Like when you rent the venue and no one shows up, it feels sadder <sighs> yeah. than when a club has booked you and you're like, oh man, this club didn't do a good job. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, I didn't do a good job. Mm -hmm. No one wants to come. Yeah, that's what's I, I'm. I've been really like aligning myself with comedy. I'm not mm -hmm. saying I want to do comedy, yeah. but just aligning myself with, like the characters in comedy. And like, mm -hmm. I really love um, Andrew Schultz. And like, yeah. I don't know if you paid attention to his newest special, but like the biggest thing he said about it is because he bought it back from a major distributor. Mm -hmm. He hasn't said if it was Netflix or whatever, but he bought it back, almost went bankrupt for yeah. it, and then made three times back oh, by wow. selling it on his his own website. Yeah. Um, And he's like, the scariest thing for a creative is actually figuring out what their worth is. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think it's like people will be like, what's your rate? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, yeah. what would I do it for? Very little. <laughs> what should I ask for? <laughs> or it's like, I think that's like where imposter syndrome yeah. comes in too, where it's kind of like, I feel like sometimes you show up. Like I remember some of the, one of the most fun weekend of shows I've done. I went to Chelan with my, my friend Aaron was opening for me and we, there's this production couple, Rotten Apple, which is like owned by these really cool people that used mm -hmm. to be B LA based and live in Chilean now. Mm -hmm. And there was like a, this old historic movie theater, the Ruby Theater. And you see like all these people come out like, and I'm like, they all spent yeah. money to see me Damn. do this for 45 minutes. You're like, just see me talk. Like, Damn. is this, am I going to ruin their weekend? Um, Cause it's like sometimes hard to, realize oh no like look at all of the work that i have done to get here yes. versus just being like yeah there's a lot of stuff that's gotten here like i think before a big show i don't know if i always will follow a set list like some of it will often be the same like the beginning or the end or something but like i don't necessarily go joke by joke by joke by joke but mm -hmm. it'll be like it's helpful for me to write it out or to look at like a physical copy of something i've written just to like as a reminder all of these jokes are here. You've done this for 45 minutes before. 
Yeah. Because otherwise I'm like, I'm just going to go out there and talk for 45 minutes. Like all these little sentences are going to add up mm -hmm. to that long. That's what's crazy is the, um, my first live audience podcast, mm -hmm. I had like a hundred people show. Yeah, up, which is, that's that awesome. Was, but to like, actually, that was my first taste of having like people there for yeah. the podcast. And you'd think it'd be scary, but like mm -hmm. you feel like it's, it kind of yeah. like recharges you to like see people like react to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Or like, I was very, I, I would talk to the audience while I was doing the podcast as well and be like, do you guys agree with this or whatever? Yeah, and that's just, cool. It's, so it's, I, I'm getting a little bit of that taste. So like, when you're doing yeah, a good you show, you're probably, yeah, you're probably like, you feel like you're on fire when you're doing Oh, that. yeah, it feels great. That's crazy. But so I'd say it feels way worse to have a bad set I in bet. front of a lot of people mm. than an empty room. The worst bomb is like if everyone else has done good. Oh. Because then you're like, it was me. <laughs> is, it, is it hard to come up in comedy in, in Seattle? Because for artists, it's kind of a, mm -hmm. a hard deal. But what is it like for comedians? I mean, I think that it is... When I was starting, I think it was a good city for me to start in, at least. Mm. So, like, there were lots of open mics. There was kind of a pathway to getting on, like, indie shows and getting up more. Like, I worked the door at the Comedy Underground that's now closed. Mm. That was, like, my home club for years. Um, so in that element, I think it's a good city to learn how to be funny and to have the opportunity to get stage time. But I think on the same end... And this is maybe shifting a little bit in the sense that like with TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and the way that like, I don't know, the algorithm still also seems uncontrollable and not necessarily bound by like mm. what the best material is. But there is like a path now to getting some kind of a following that is not as traditional, of like be in L.A., be in New York, get on TV where like. I think being having a set that aired on Comedy Central has helped a lot in the sense of like it was a, felt like emotionally huge mm -hmm. and it was like something where that makes you kind of believe in yourself a little bit more. And it's been a credit that's helped me get booked on other things or I can put it on ads, stuff like that. But in terms of like actually it wasn't like I was on TV and I had a following mm -hmm. like maybe. I've had maybe one person who I didn't know <laughs> yeah. recognize me from that. Wow. And I think maybe I got like five or six new followers. That's it from copies? Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. and I think it's different now when like they put the sets on like right. social media and you're tied to it. But like, yeah, I don't mean that in a way to discredit it or to say like it wasn't like mm -hmm. a really incredible experience or that I wasn't really fortunate. But like it wasn't like I was on TV and now I have a career. Mm -hmm. I also was lucky to get a credit like that when I was like two years into doing stand up, But the reality of it also was that like I was being on TV didn't make me better at stand up mm. than I already was. Like it wasn't like I got a TV credit and I was qualified to headline a show. Mm. I was still someone who only really had 10 to 15 minutes of material. But nowadays that kind of means everything. Like you have one funny reel on TikTok and then, it can help. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a weird, um, it's a weird thing. But like now I feel like I've kind of after maybe seven ish years of working at this, mm. I feel like I've kind of grown into some of the credits that I got years ago. Mm. So would, do you wish you had those opportunities now instead or are you kind of no. happy you got them early? I think that, um, I was 
I'm not going to say like it was all luck. I think that would be unfair, mm -hmm. but I definitely was very lucky for those things to happen in Seattle for me, especially that early on. Those are like credits that some people who work very hard and who are very funny never get over the course of their whole life. Mm -hmm. And so to get them two, three years in was like something that I did not take for granted and didn't feel like. I also at the time nor now felt like I was the best comic in Seattle mm -hmm. or the person who deserved the credit the most. I just happened to be lucky enough to be in the position to get the audition and I delivered a good audition. Mm. And so I got an opportunity. Like I did the things and I did the work that got me there, but it wasn't because there weren't other people who would have been more ready or more deserving. It just happened the way that it did. Is comedy about, because music's all about connections, is comedy mm -hmm. similar? I think so, okay. yeah. I think like most of the, not all of, but like when I look at the clubs that I've gotten to headline or feature in or opportunities, most of it has come from a friend being like, do you want to open for me on the road? Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to recommend, recommend you to this booker. Like most of the things that have come have been from friendships in stand-up or something like like uh, producing these shows with Chris, these bigger ones. That's mm -hmm. because of like our, our relationship together. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because of like, and I also look at just like jokes I've written. It's like not all, some of them I, are things where like maybe I did write it all on my own, but the other jokes were like I pitch it to a friend and they have a tag right. or something. And I think that I look at the friends that I have who I think are immensely talented and being friends with them makes me feel like, oh, maybe I do belong in this. Mm -hmm. Like, So what are, your, what are the next steps for you? So you're saying you're hoping to leave the food bank soon. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do to m make sure you can maintain um, just doing comedy? Yeah. Is it just by continuing to write until you slowly build a bigger audience or how, do, how does that work to like mm -hmm. to completely live solely off comedy? Yeah. I mean, you're asking a very good question. Mm. <laughs> um, I think that some of it is just that it is going to involve a little bit of like the unknown. Mm. And I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where because for the last few years before the pandemic, I was paying not, like my whole life with but I was covering rent with stand-up mm -hmm. that I've been able to like build enough of a nest egg that I feel like I can invest in myself um, but I think it is like I want to see if I strip all of the energy that goes into working 40 hours a week and like for me to be creative I feel like I need to have space in my brain Mm -hmm. I need to have time to be bored. Yeah. I need to have time to like be a person and go on walks. Like I'm hoping that that will help with not only writing more, but also just, I know kind of what some of the goals are in the next year. Like I'd like to work towards recording like an album. I'd like to tape something hopefully. Um, and I feel like to do that, I need to be able to just consistently do stand up on the road and do longer sets more often mm -hmm. um, because often it would be like, oh, I get to headline shows for two months and then I finally feel like I'm in the pocket of doing 45 minutes of material mm -hmm. and then I don't do that for six months mm -hmm. and I kind of have to relearn 
because it's different to do a 10 minute set 15 minute set than like um, the pacing of like 45 minutes and being comfortable doing it and so that's a piece of it and some of it is just hoping like social media feels like kind of such a gross thing to be obsessed with but it also has been the thing that has more than anything in the last couple of years changed things for me in the last like six months like I had started at the beginning of the pandemic I posted like stand up every day on TikTok for a month Mm. to I would say minor success like enough where I had some clips get like enough views that it was cool for me like maybe like 600,000 whatever Mm. I think I had maybe like at that point like 20,000 followers like nothing that's major on that app but like Mm. enough that it's like this is something um but what had happened is like oh I burnt out I ran out of all my material Mm. because I'd only had whatever recordings I had before the pandemic and so I started recording a lot of stuff this last year I invested in like all of the money I made off a big show that Chris and I had run I put into buying like a 4k camera um and started recording a lot of stuff and in the new year was like I'm gonna post one reel each week and I know some people do more than that and that's great but I was like what feels sustainable to me for hopefully a year or if I have to cut back I could do twice a month but like I think like between crowd work or a riff and the jokes I've already written I can do this for a year and let's just like no other opportunities are coming my way I'm in Seattle yeah like let's I kind of have to try this on my own and was fortunate enough that like a couple of those clips just started popping off and I started with around like 1700 followers Mm. um, going into the new year and now I'm sitting around like 28,500 which is like pretty cool for me and it's like that's where I'm starting to see real people show up to shows Mm -hmm. and it's not at a tipping point where like that's a living but I'm like this is pretty cool and I think it's like reaching a point now where I've been trying to separate kind of like some of the realities of being an adult Mm -hmm. from how I would feel about this not thinking about about those realities as just like a kid yeah because like I look at like being in college and I remember like my roommate showed me this comedian Mike Birbiglia and that's kind of how we became friends was like watching mm-hmm. this guy together um, and then like these jokes kind of you share them with other people and I was like that's the dream it's like people like someone bringing someone to like even if it's just like one person bringing their friend to see me I'm like that's kind of like what would have been a total dream come true as a kid Mm -hmm. and that still has meaning even if it's not enough to sustain like right uh, a full life yet but it's got it's got to be a little bit of excitement and oh it's so cool at the same time you know it's also like one of my best friends was in town a few months ago and I don't think I'd ever really thought about this before I was like I think this is maybe the first year where I'm like, oh, this might pan out. Like, mm. I think that I maybe had thought like, oh, I'll probably eventually could maybe find a way to make a living doing this, but I don't think that there was any kind of like 
a visible pathway of what to try doing. And I still, the pathway is not really fully there, mm. but it's like the first year I'm like, maybe this actually has a real chance. Yeah. Are you able to talk to comedians who are doing this full time? Are they able to give you any advice? Or have you surrounded yourself with those? Type yeah, of people? Well, I think it's so it's so different. Like my friend Andrew, who is the first person to really take me on the road with him and get me these longer, like 30 minute sets. Um, he has kind of a life that I'd be if that was where I ended, I would be very happy to have the life he has now, hmm. um, like has a home, has a wife. Like, I don't know if I want a kid, but he has a kid hmm. and he makes a full time living doing stand-up and I'm like that would be a dream come true but like the ways to make a living are so different like it could be that your album gets played on Sirius so you get royalties and you keep putting out new albums it could be that you perform at colleges which pay better mm -hmm. it could be that you work on cruises and so I think it's like what I'm seeing people doing and what feels like the path that I'm pursuing right now is I would like to do some of those things. Like I would like to record an album. It would be great if it gets played mm -hmm. and I get some money from that. But I want to try to build like an, a real audience and people who want to see me. And I want to be able to work with people that I like and I care about and I love. Yeah. And that involves doing a lot of things on your own, like self-producing a lot of shows and that is its own separate work from stand-up. And it's like an almost a whole different job, but it feels like that is maybe kind of like one of the pathways. And then also once you like figure out, like I, I tell a lot of my friends that like, as an artist, you want to have like multiple ways of mm -hmm. income, right? Yeah. Or, and at first you have to do everything, but then mm -hmm. once for, this may be specifically for an, like a musician, but like, yeah. um, after a while, like if a record label reaches out to you, you know what you can offer yeah. and if what they're offering is actually valid because you already know how to do some yeah. of those things. I think you, it's also just like I try to have some faith in the sense that some of the things that have happened for me through stand-up over the last seven years mm. are things I never would have imagined. Mm. Like it's not something I would have come up with. Like I got, like for instance, like just a little thing I or you look at the, I think it's interesting to look at like the pathway of what leads to the next. So I go, I saw this random Facebook post. And because of that, I went to this, uh, this audition. Because of the audition, I was on Comedy Central. Because mm. of that, I got to go to this festival in Montreal just for laughs and record another set for Kevin Hart's like digital network. Because of, um, because of that, um, I met this woman, Jill Kimmel, who was friends with my friend Andrew and I then met her again when I was featuring for him in Glendale, Arizona and she hosted the show just because she wanted to hang out mm. and she I was in the same room when she was like want to do this festival to Andrew and she's like you could do it too mm. so that I went to Las Vegas and they did this like festival sponsored by Zappos and I met um, this guy Tony who had founded Zappos and was like really liked my stand-up and was a, like became a friend and was like, come back and do Life is Beautiful. And so I got to do this festival in Las Vegas. Mm. And I go, all of these little things led to that. Yeah. And then even things that were like opportunities that either I gave up or didn't pan out. Like maybe there was a club where I didn't want to work there anymore because of the way people were being treated. I go, okay, well now I have to run more of my own shows. And so I learned how to run a show. And then there's a pandemic. And so Chris and I are kind of forced to like, create this thing just out of necessity 
which has since then kind of allowed us to do shows at a scale that like we never would have been able to do mm -hmm. otherwise is just like without that almost being something that we had to do and it's kind of led to some of the cooler things that have meant more in comedy well i'm excited for your career path and it oh, seems like you. I, I have faith in you yeah. you know we've only met twice but i have faith <laughs> you got a fan here um what, what is some advice that you'd give to up-and-coming creators, yeah. artists, influencers, comedians? I mean, I don't know if this is very inspirational, <laughs> but I feel like it was the thing when people are like, want to talk about doing stand-up because they're thinking about it. And I think it maybe applies to all of these other, like any other dream mm. someone has. What was comforting to me going to the first two open mics before I performed for the first time was kind of realizing like, oh, nobody else cares. Mm. And that later becomes the challenge to overcome. But the initial first step is I was like, I've been thinking about in some way or another doing stand up since I was in seventh grade. And now I'm 22 years old and I've been fantasizing about this thing for years. And doing one open mic means the world to me and nothing to absolutely everyone else. Mm -hmm. So, like, for me to go up and do one three-minute set feels like like years of process yeah. is coming into fruition. But the reality of it to everyone else in there is, like, here's another guy who came to an open mic anyone can sign up for who did three <laughs> minutes. And how it goes to me means something, but means nothing to anyone else. Like, unless you go up and say something like truly hateful <laughs> and awful, no one's going to remember what happened. Mm. So all you need to do is like be a mindful, thoughtful, kind human, go up and you bomb. Doesn't matter whatsoever. Yeah. And I think like seeing like, oh, it matters to me, but no one else was kind of freeing where I was like, oh, it's okay if it doesn't go good. Yeah. It's okay if it, and if it goes great, that's awesome, but it also kind of, there's no meaning attached to it. And so I think like if you want to do it, just having the, giving yourself the freedom to try. And I think the same applies to like once you're making art, putting it out there now where like that was what was scary this year in terms of like, I'm going to put these jokes online because it can be painful if like no one watches it and no one likes it. Mm -hmm. And I've had that happen on other platforms, but it's like, it almost like kind of feels embarrassing I don't know when it be became embarrassing to try. Mm. I feel like I'll look at someone's it's like, no, there's nothing embarrassing about trying. Like yeah. that's what we're all trying to do. Yeah. hundred percent. You're really good at analogies, my guy. Mm. Oh, thank you. And you're a cool dude. So <laughs> hopefully we didn't put people to sleep with our tea. <laughs> and our oh my God, we're literally drinking voices. tea, soft voices, <laughs> smooth jazz. <laughs> we started talking about clarinets. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> um, but yes, this has been a, a great episode. I've been wanting to have you on for a few months now, so I'm happy. Oh, thank you for reaching out. It's yeah, been a pleasure. Of course. Um, what is the easiest way for people to reach you? Uh, you can you can find me online at Bo Johnson Comedy on Instagram and TikTok. There we go. This has been the NAS podcast with Bo Johnson, and we did it.